And as we begin this morning, let me just start with a question. When was the last time you got into a disagreement with someone? There's some audible laughter. Perhaps it was this morning on the way to church. Maybe it wasn't a a knockdown, drag out kind of fight, but a disagreement, a conflict, a time when you wanted to make sure that the other person knew that you were right. Could happen over any number of things. Maybe it's loading the dishwasher. Dinner plates go on the bottom towards the back and bowls on top. Maybe that's just me. Uh, Maybe it's arguing over sports, entertainment, politics. What was last year's best movie? Who's a better Husker quarterback, Scott Frost or Eric Crouch? All right, we got a Crouch in the audience. Shoot, these days you don't even have to disagree with somebody face-to-face. You can comment on a reply on social media. You can get into it with them over a text message, right? Where does this come from, this desire to be right? Whether it's outright prove you wrong kind of right or the subtle sort of disgruntled kind of rightness. Deep in us, there is this sort of longing to be right. Right by some standard or by your own standards. Let me tell you how this looks for me. I've got this thing where it's like no matter what room I'm in, I feel like I've got to be the most knowledgeable and competent person on all subjects. It could be anything from soccer, which I love dearly. It could be geopolitics. Should we or shouldn't we do something about Syria? And you're like, nerd. <laughs> um, could be even just things like understanding God, theology. But when a discussion on one of these subjects starts, I kind of, my ears perk up, start kind of moving in, start getting a little bit triggered, like, oh, I can't wait to jump into this. Can't wait to land my first line or my first argument. <clears throat> Yes, this, no, this, haven't you read this? Oh, you haven't read this. Well, why don't you go read that, come back, we'll have a good educated discussion. (laughs) This tendency in me, though, is not always a conscious one. And honestly, I usually don't realize how much of a self-righteous jerk I've been until long after the conversation's over. It dawns on me that I was trying to one-up somebody or I'm begrudging them in my heart because I felt like they proved me wrong or they were more knowledgeable than me. But this is the particular way For me, I just long to be right. In other people's eyes or in my own eyes. I'm the guy with the right knowledge, the winsome arguments. And when this desire to be right flares up in me, I want you to know that I am right by my insight or my intellect. You see, this desire to be right, it runs deep in all of us. And this morning, we're going to explore it a little bit more through the eyes of Paul to Timothy. Chris laid out at the beginning of this letter really well last week, and he posed some questions like, what is a healthy church? What's healthy discipleship look like? And today, we're going to build on those ideas with, what is healthy teaching? You see, there are these false teachers in Timothy's church that were they're off somehow. They had wandered into what 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 says, Vain discussions. They desired to be teachers of the law when they clearly had no idea what they were talking about. Religion can be used as a way to be seen as right, just like anything else. 
right teaching, right behavior, or in this case, with Timothy and the Ephesian church that he pastors, a right understanding of the law and the gospel. So, as we pick it up where you left off last week, Paul continues to address Timothy on this false teaching more in depth. He's going to work over this idea of being right in a religious sense. So if you haven't yet opened your Bibles to 1 Timothy, you've heard it read. And another quick side note, Paul, the guy who's authoring this, he's concerned, and rightfully so, because he of all people knows where trying to be right by the law will lead. And the big idea Paul wants to drive home to Timothy is that the law doesn't make you right. Jesus does. Paul's tried to be right by the law before. He's walked that road, and it's the exact road that Jesus saved him from. And he lays it all out there for Timothy to help him and encourage him. So that's where we're going to go this morning, okay? If you walk out of here remember nothing else, remember this big idea. The law doesn't make you right. Jesus does. The law doesn't make you right. Jesus does. To unpack this big idea, we're going to look at three questions. Who is Paul? What is the gospel? And why does it matter? All right? So let's get started. Who is Paul? Before we can really understand the big idea of this part of Paul's letter to Timothy, we have to know a little bit more about Paul himself. Paul highlights his past life a little bit to Timothy. He says, you heard it read, but he's an example of Jesus' perfect patience being on display. Which to Timothy makes total sense, because he knows Paul, right? Paul's not writing some stranger guy, Timothy. He's writing to friend, Timothy. So Timothy's acquainted with Paul, so Paul only has to highlight a couple aspects about himself, and he knows that Timothy can kind of fill in the blanks. So let's start reading in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul touches on how he used to be, but where can we get a fuller picture to know Paul as Timothy does? To understand who Paul is, first we got to know who Paul was. He alludes to it, but let's look in a couple places in Acts quick, okay? <clears throat> let's jump to Acts 7. The words will be on the screen if you don't want to go there in your Bibles, if you have one. We're starting in verse 58. Let me just set the stage quick, okay? Acts is an account of the early church. And we're hopping right into a spot where the heat is getting turned up, okay? Stephen, one of the disciples, is getting persecuted. He's been arrested by Jewish authorities. He's just given this epic speech, and he closes the speech by accusing the authorities that have arrested him of murdering the Messiah, Jesus, and they're furious. Okay? Verse 58. Then they cast him, Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul 
was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Paul, known here as Saul, is overseeing the murder of Jesus' disciples, chasing down anyone that's following Jesus and dragging them to jail, bounty hunter style. Not the kind of guy you'd typically invite to your kids' birthday party, right? Let's jump to Acts 26, quick. Okay, here is Paul recounting his old self, Saul, who we just read about, to King Agrippa after being arrested. So Paul is appealing his case, his arrest case, to the highest authority he can find, and he starts like this, verse 4 of Acts 26. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now listen to this. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in, the opposing, in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Something's different, though, isn't it, in this? The Paul we see here isn't the Saul that we met in Acts 7. But life usually makes a lot more sense in the rearview mirror, doesn't it? Hindsight's kind of always 20-20. Here, in Acts 26, we see Paul have this sort of awareness. Talks about the past life and past tense and is almost condemning himself as he witnesses about himself. The Paul writing to Timothy has looked in the mirror and has seen himself for what he truly can be at his worst. And what was making him his worst? Living by the law. Paul found his rightness by his own obedience to the law. And what kind of person did that make him? He describes himself in Philippians chapter 3 this way. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. If anyone was right by the law, it was Paul. He swam in the culture of religious people. He knew all the right things to say, all the right things to do. He knew how to be seen as competent, put together, affirmed by religious standards. Who in your life do you know to be like that? Knowing their right by some standard, carrying their rightness like a card in their wallet, right by some sets of laws. 
What are they like? They might not be murdering people in the streets like Saul, but are they pleasant to be around? Maybe the person who came into your head right now is you. What are you measuring yourself by? What set of standards, rules, or laws? What kind of person does that make you? Something changed in Paul. What he thought was bringing him closer to God was actually making him furthest from God that he could possibly imagine. To the point where, as he writes this letter to Timothy, he calls himself a blasphemer and arrogant. What changed? What made Paul who he is from Saul to Paul to the Apostle Paul to the old man writing this letter? Well, what happened is he met Jesus. God chose the person farthest from him to demonstrate his power to save. Now, to those around Paul, he would have been seen as probably the closest to God, right? Like he said, right by the law, the law that was actually given by God. But Paul gets stopped and changed by Jesus himself. Pick it up in Acts 26 again where we left off. Paul is going to recount his meeting of Jesus to King Agrippa. Agrippa. Verse 12. I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's to resist God's will. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which you will appear to you which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see, God desired to show Paul and us in the clearest way possible that the law doesn't make you right jesus does so let's talk more about that let's talk more about the gospel the good news that jesus makes people right with god number two what is the gospel to understand the gospel there's a number of different passages we could look to but we don't have to go far because first timothy lays it out really clear and simple okay so the gospel message described in 1 Timothy, has two points. Law and cross. Okay? Law and cross. We have to start with the law. And even though I've kind of touched a little bit on the law already and tried to make a point and say, hey, the law doesn't make you right with God, 
I don't want to mislead you to make you think it's bad or something, okay? So let's look back at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, okay? The start of our passage this morning. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down just for the, for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their mothers and fathers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul starts with, hey, the law is good. And why is it good? Because it shows us the character and heart of God himself. It shows us what's true. shows us what's right. Think about a compass, okay? If you've ever had a compass that doesn't have a true north dialed into it, it's not going to do you much good in the forest, right? You're not going to know which way to compare the direction it's popping up against. You'd be wandering through the forest aimlessly for hours. <laughs> the law in the same way, is true north of a compass. It shows us what's right and wrong, what's good and what's evil, and helps us to direct our path so we're not lost in a forest somewhere. But it's only good if it's used lawfully, he said in verse 8, to be laid down for the lawless and disobedient. Listen to Bible commentator John Stott talk about the law's purpose. The principle that the law is for the lawless applies to every kind of law. For example, we, the reason we need speed limits is that there are so many reckless drivers on the road. The reason we need boundaries and fences is that it is the only way to prevent unlawful trespass. And the reason we need civil rights and race legislations, race relation, race relate, wow, say that three times fast, you guys, race relations legislation is in order to protect citizens from insult, discrimination, and exploitation. If everybody could be trusted to respect everybody else's rights, laws to safeguard them would not be necessary. Laws are good because they constrain and restrain lawlessness in ourselves. And Paul is knocking on these false teachers that Timothy's facing because they're using the law improperly. They're trying to get people to talk about all kinds of stuff that doesn't matter, and it leads them into a place that's not helpful. So then Paul goes on to list a handful of things And it's important to understand where this list is coming from, okay? He's not just grabbing stuff out of thin air. He's actually giving a color commentary on the Ten Commandments, okay? So a little sidebar on the Ten Commandments, okay? Hang with me. The Ten Commandments is the law that was given to Moses and to Israel in the desert after the exodus from Egypt. If you've all seen the Charlton Heston movie, you know what we're talking about, okay? It's divided, the Ten Commandments is divided into two tables, all right? The first table The first four commandments relate to loving God. And then the five through ten relate to loving neighbor. So you can see this second table referenced really clearly, okay? Verse nine, the law is for those who strike their fathers and mothers. It's a violation of the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. For murderers who would violate the sixth commandment. The sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, violation of the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Enslavers, violation of the eighth commandment, stealing in the worst possible way. Liars and perjurers, a violation of the ninth commandment, do not bear false witness. And just for kicks and giggles, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, okay? So sort of the catch-all phrase at the end, anything you can think of. So the second table 
relates to love for neighbors. Now, if you work back from there, from the mother's and father's commandment that Paul has mentioned, you can see how Paul is working out this first table a, a, a bit, okay, about love for God. It's hard to love and honor God when you're profane, unholy, sinful, ungodly, right? There's a rejection of God in those descriptors. Okay, Ten Commandments sidebar over. Paul starts with the law, what we just talked about, as being good. But man, can it be crushing. (laughs) His list here paints some really extremes, but can you honestly say that you've always honored your father and mother? Never been angry? Loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Trying to be right by the law leads to hopelessness. But the law reveals something in us. Aside from God's holiness, the law reveals our sinfulness, our character. Paul thought that being right by the law is what made him right with God, but he missed that the law was actually meant to show him his need, not his rightness. The law can't save, but striving for obedience, though good it might be, it can never be done perfectly. Let's think back to one of Stott's examples that I just, I just talked about, the speed limit, okay? Let me ask you, how fast do you think you'd drive on the interstate if there was no speed limit posted? I can tell you how fast I would go when I do see a speed limit. Three to five miles over, right? Hey, as long as you stay under 70 and a 65, you're good, right? I see that speed limit sign, I think, Psh, that's, that's just, that's a suggestion. I know what's really good for me. I'm set. Thanks, though. But what would happen if there wasn't a speed limit sign there? I might go 60, because that's what I feel like going, because I'm comfortable at that speed. But there's something about the law telling me what I should and shouldn't do that just chafes against me. The law surfaces in me something that was already there, rebellion. But I didn't see it until the law was actually facing me. It served as this mirror so I could sort of see my true self, what was really there. So with that in mind, I want to take a moment to introduce to you a visual aid, okay, to kind of help explain this holiness of God and awareness of sin. It's been super helpful for me. It's called the cross chart. And some of you might be familiar with it. And if you are, I hope it's good and refreshing to go over again. And if it's new to you, I really hope it's as helpful to you as it has been for me, okay? So you'll see it pop up on the screen. So this initial line across the bottom is just time, okay? Your life going left to right. But then suddenly something happens. You're met with God and his law and you can't keep going forward in the same direction that you were. So the law does two things. First, as Paul reminded us, it reveals to us God's holiness. That's the top line, okay? And as time goes on, our awareness of God's holiness, as we learn, will grow over time. Now, the second thing that the law does is reveal to us our sinful nature. That's the bottom line. Just like the speed limit analogy I just explained, okay? And the longer I am under the law, the more my awareness of my true sinful nature will grow. So the gospel starts with me and my life intersecting with God and his law. Law that reveals this gulf between myself and God. 
his holiness and my sinfulness, they separate us. And no matter what I do over the course of my life, if I try to bridge this gap and work my way to become right with God, I will inevitably fall short. I need something else besides the law to bridge this gap. Remember the big idea that we started with today? The law doesn't save us. I can obey for a while, but sooner or later I'm going to break God's law. And as James 2.10 reminds us, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point of it is guilty of all of it. God's grace, though, is greater than I could ever imagine. Because the point of the gospel is the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. Verses 14 through 16 of our passage this morning. In the cross, the character of Christ and his redemption is revealed. Verse 14, Paul says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul, despite himself, despite his efforts to be right by God's law, which was actually making him far from God, is made right by Jesus. Jesus was perfect. Jesus fulfilled the demands of God's law, and he is without sin. And he bridges the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. Jesus gives his right record before God to anyone who wants it. A gift of undeserving mercy, Paul says. And Paul, of all people, like we read earlier, was saved by grace as the extreme example of God forgiving sin. So that we, you, me, us, everyone, might know the height and depth and breadth of God's love for us in Christ. At first, it might be small when you first learn it and come to knowledge of it. But if you receive God's gift of forgiveness extended to you in Jesus, if you respond by believing that Jesus' perfect record in life and death belong to you, then his death was for you. He takes away your sin. And now you're united with him in his life and death and resurrection. Galatians 4 puts it this way. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we we might receive adoption as sons. I have to pause and ask, have you ever thought there was no hope for you? Is there something in your past that makes you feel unforgivable? No way God would overlook that. Or have you ever ever thought that there's no hope for someone else? That person is far from God. No way. Maybe you think they don't deserve God's grace or forgiveness. Maybe you don't think you deserve God's grace or forgiveness. 
If so, God is speaking to you this morning through Paul's words to Timothy to point you to Paul as the foremost example of God's perfect patience on display. If God can save a man like Paul, then there's hope for the rest of us. Who can't he save? (laughs) If this is the first time you're hearing the gospel right now and you're receiving it with joy, then celebrate. Thank God he sent Jesus to live and die for you to set you free from the curse of the law. If you have heard this before and received this before, then rejoice. Return to this good news. Be reminded of this good news and never move past this good news. This is the gospel that saves you. This is the gospel that continues to save you. And the beauty of the gospel is that as your continue, as you life continues to go and your awareness of sin grows, can you hit the, the next slide? <clears throat> that as these two things grow, you know what else grows? Is your awareness of God's grace and Christ's love for you in the gospel. Because you're not perfect and I'm not perfect. And as you continue to sin, you can continue to be reminded again and again and again that Jesus died for you. He died for every version of you that will ever live. Those things that you did in your past or that were done to you in your past, Jesus had those in mind when he went to the cross. The things in your life now that keep you from God, the ways you run from him and hide from him and disobey him, Jesus had them, even your sinful disposition towards him, in mind as he went to the cross. The sins you will commit in the future, the versions of yourself that you haven't even become yet, that are still separated from God, Jesus had them in mind when he went to the cross. There's no escape from this, from his love, from his reach. And that's why at the end of Romans 8, Paul says, as he's overcome and overwhelmed with this truth, the beauty of this truth, he calls out, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So what about you? Can you say with confidence like Paul that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ? You're invited to believe this morning, to respond in faith, to trust that Christ died for you and now you belong to him. Now there's still a little bit more. While this is good news for Paul and this is good news for you and me, it's also good news for us. Paul isn't just writing to Timothy for Timothy's sake, though that would be good. He's writing to Timothy for the church's sake. So our final point this morning. So why does it matter? Why does any of this even matter? Well, if we miss this, if we miss the gospel, then we might look like a church on the surface 
but we'd be like Paul, far from God. And Paul is writing to Timothy so that he can snuff out the false gospel and the false teaching so that people aren't led into confusion and doubt, but instead life and joy and freedom. Jesus changed Paul, and the gospel of Jesus changes everything. Paul makes it clear that the true gospel leads to true change. So if we miss the gospel, we will remain unchanged, or worse, moving farther from God. And how might that look? If we miss the gospel, if we live without it as central to everything about us, it can look a couple of ways, all right? Performing. Paul is the example of this. Being right, doing good, following the rules of religion, trying to measure up to God, but being led to only one place, away from God. (laughs) Like Paul, right by the law through performance will never make us perfect. So let me ask, what ways are you performing for God? What ways do you try to earn God's favor? What ways do you expect him to accept you because of what you have done or because of what you are doing? The other way we can miss the gospel is through pretending. If we aren't resting in the gospel, the awareness of our sin will crush us. And to compensate, we'll avoid omitting the truth about ourselves. I'm not that bad. Or we'll compare ourselves to others. At least I'm not as bad as that person. Or we'll find some kind of rightness for ourselves. Here's all the good things I've done. We'll avoid the weight of our sin by avoiding the truth about it. Now, you might be prone to either pretending or performing. You might be prone to both pretending or performing, but you need to hear this this morning, First City. The good news of the gospel is that you don't have to perform anymore. Jesus performed for you better than you ever could, and now he offers his perfection to you as a free gift of grace. The good news of the gospel is you don't have to pretend anymore. Jesus didn't die for pretend versions of you. He died for you. The real, the honest, and the ugly you. So now you can be honest about where you really are. About what's really buried in your heart. Honest about the depth of your sin. Because God already knows. That's why he sent his son into the world to let you know. He knows you. And he still loves you. And as the cross chart illustrates, as our awareness of God's holiness grows and our awareness of our sin grows, rather than perform or pretend, all we have to do is receive Jesus as Lord. And your love for him, your understanding of him and his grace towards you in the cross will grow. And so will your joy and freedom. The true gospel leads to true change leads to changed hearts, changed minds, and changed churches. So as we start to wind down, let me ask quick, what does a healthy 
gospel-centered church look like? All right? Look back at 1 Timothy and see what marks of true change in a gospel church really look like. First, thankfulness. Verse 12. Paul says, I thank him. Paul is thankful to God for giving him new life in Christ. The true gospel changes your disposition to God and makes you see that all you have is from him. So he's the one who deserves all the thanking. Next, love and hopefulness. Verse 14. Full hearts and hope in Christ. The true gospel changes your disposition toward others because in the gospel you can see no one is beyond God's reach. You are not beyond God's reach. The gospel is good news for you at your worst and at your best because at your best, it still doesn't get you any closer to God and at your worst, it doesn't make you further from him. You can hope in Jesus. He's better than your best could ever be and he comes to you in your worst because he knew you at your worst when he was hanging on the cross. Look at Paul's story as an example of that. Next, humility. Verse 15. Because of Christ, Paul can acknowledge that he is worse than he wishes to admit. (laughs) He calls himself the foremost of all sinners because the gospel makes you humble before others and God. You're free to be honest about where you really are. And this freedom is new and fresh and ongoing like the cross chart kind of illustrates. Your love for Jesus grows as you're humbled by his goodness and love toward you. And finally, The mark of a healthy church is one where there is worship. Verse 17. He ends this part of his letter to Timothy this way. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. The gospel is from him, it's for him, and we owe it all to him. So worship him accordingly. A church centered on and rooted in the gospel is thankful, loving, and hopeful, humble, and worshipful. These are the marks that Paul displays in his evidence as he tries to encourage Timothy and for us, First City, to see what is a healthy community of people set on Jesus, resting on Jesus, experiencing Jesus and the gospel of grace, and serving neighbors and one another as Jesus served us. What's it look like? So that his name and his glory and his goodness can be made known in the world. First City, the law doesn't make you right. Jesus does. So my final word to you as we close. If you've never heard this before, let this sink in. This is the gospel. Consider it. You're invited to believe it, to be changed by Jesus like Paul was, to have new life defined by Jesus and not some moral standards and not your own standards. If you've thought you've heard this before, but have had different ideas about Jesus and the gospel, I hope that you're provoked this morning to consider what you've assumed to be true. Reconsider. This is the gospel. And if you have heard this before, if you've believed this before, be reminded that this is the gospel. That when you feel adrift or burned out or distant, return. 
return to the gospel, return to it constantly, like Paul did, who set himself for us as an example for all of time, the kind of God that saves as we repent and believe the gospel, which returns to you your joy of salvation. Final thought. A summary of this gospel truth from the Heidelberg Catechism, which we read this morning in our profession of faith. Question 60 says this. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil. Nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. You're invited to accept this gift this morning, to receive the rightness of Christ and turn away from your pretending or your performing, and instead find your value and your rightness in him, Because the law doesn't make you right. Jesus does.